Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... And that was in November 2011, that deal was finished. And they asked me to stay on for two years as part of the contract. And I said, oh, could you make it to the 20th of January 2014? In other words, just a bit over two years. I said, yes, but why? And I said, well, then I'll be able to say I've worked for Commonwealth Bank or a wholly owned subsidiary for 50 years. How does a self-described country boy who grew up on a small dairy farm in northern New South Wales, the only one of five siblings to properly finish high school, then get through university, create and build not just one business empire, but three empires no less? Well, if you're Barry Lambert, for a start, he doesn't consider himself a business genius, reckons he was never motivated by amassing wealth, but rather started out simply wanting to pay off his mortgage to look after his wife and three young kids. In fact, Barry Lambert doesn't think of himself as a business entrepreneur, yet that's exactly what he's achieved over the past four decades. He's not a household business name, but he started and built up the accountancy franchise group Count Financial. That's empire number one which he then sold to the Commonwealth Bank for over $370 million back in 2011. Empire number two was called Count Plus. Then his third business empire, well, Barry reckons he kind of fell into it, trying to help find a treatment for his severely epileptic granddaughter, Caitlin. So he and his son got into the medicinal hemp business, of all things. And so almost into his 70s, this rich lister became a cannabis mogul with a worldwide business called Ecofiber, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Oh, and along the way, he and his wife, Joy, started a philanthropic foundation, which supports various charities and causes. Not bad for a teen who joined the Commonwealth Bank as a bright-eyed 16-year-old straight out of school. I hope you enjoy my chat with this reluctant entrepreneur, Barry Lambert. Barry Lambert, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. My pleasure, Helen. It's great to talk to you because you have actually started and been responsible for at least three or four empires in your business life. So I do want to go into a couple of those. So maybe we should start with Count Financial. Now, you did leave school at 16 and a half. You went to Tari High School, but you did end up going to university and then started working for the Commonwealth Bank, what, as a teller? Well, well, doing the garbages originally in Tari for a for a while, but yes, I joined the Commonwealth Bank in Tari straight after I left school because back then you needed to get a job or whatever, and uh, I was on the condition I go to university. Right. So you always wanted to go to uni. Yes. Back then, even though we were from the country and I lived out, out in the bush a bit, you might say, but most kids up there then, it's a bit different today, but most kids then wanted to get on and provide for themselves because times, I guess, we were born just after the war, immediately after the war I was born, 
So, you know, the times, I guess, in, in, compared to today were relatively hard. We didn't know any different, though, but nevertheless, you knew you had to be provide for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, Tari's was at that time dairy farming country, mid-north coast of New yeah. South Wales. We're on a dairy farm out, out between Tari and Wingham, out Tononi Way, for those that might know them. I actually went to school at Wingham for most of my time, but Wingham only had a school to the third year, which is, say, year 10 equivalent today. Right. So I had to go to Tari High for the last two years. That's how I got to Tari High. Yeah. That was interesting in a way too, Helen, because I lived on a farm. There was no bus to Tari High. So I had to illegally drive the Land Rover <gasps> down to Gloucester Road. They call it Buckets Away today, I believe. Oh, yes. And then catch the Cranback bus. So I guess I've been doing things on the, <laughs> the wrong side of the law a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Since those days. Forever. That's the way it was. Well, we'll get to the <laughs> other end of the wrong side of the law much later. So you you want to get a job and you got a job at Combank. Got a job and I wanted to go to the university. So that was on a condition they offered me the ability to go to university. They sent me to Kensington Branch, which doesn't exist today. but um, In Sydney? In Sydney. So, so you could go to what? New South Wales yep. University. So I lived in a boarding house up at Randwick in the spot, catch the bus down to to Doncaster Avenue, whatever it might be called, and then I'd work all day, go to university, walk up to the university at night, three nights a week, then walk home to the spot, did that, sort of all got a bit much. Did you always have an attitude, because you're one of five children, One of five, I understand. yes. Yep. And the only one to go to high school, you might say, or leaving certificate. In fact, not all of them passed the intermediate certificate. As you probably know, my mother died young, so I always got a message from my relatives. Barry, your mother, expected something from you, you know. So that may have been in the background. I don't know that. I never seriously think about that in that sense, but that may have been why I was always a bit different to the other, to my rest of my kids, yeah. the brothers. Yeah. So you ended up an accountant? So, so I went, went to university for a year. That got a bit much. So I asked the bank if they could get me out. of. I didn't like Sydney that much. My now wife was a teacher's college, living out at Asheville. So I'd see her on the weekend, missing, not playing sport, which I did all my life. So the bank sent me to New Guinea, to the Highlands of New Guinea. Wow. Um, up a place called Mount Hagen. Beautiful. And then I started doing a study by correspondence in New Guinea. None of my workmates were studying, but nevertheless, I did. So I studied by correspondence, then came back and got married. Said to the bank, I don't want to go to Sydney, back to Sydney. They sent me to Coffs Harbour. That's where our kids were born, uh, and I continued to do correspondence up there and, and uh, studied banking. That's the way it was. So you started off as a single accountant in the suburbs. You didn't go and work for a big accountancy firm? No, no. no. I was working. What happened was how I got involved in that. I was a banker. I ended up working in Commonwealth Bank for 18 and a half years. But when I moved to Sydney the second time, because we needed to come here for medical reasons for a, a child we had who died at two and a half, but nevertheless, you needed medical care. When I came to Sydney, I then, again, the bank did the right thing. I said, I didn't want to go to Sydney, but need to be close to Sydney. I was loans officer Camden, which officially at that time was, was not metropolitan. No. As far as the bank was concerned. So they moved to Camden. Then I became what they call an executive trainee with the bank, along with a bloke called David Murray. There's ah. no one talk. I'm two years older than David. But Who ended up becoming the CEO of Commonwealth Bank. That's right. And I had to go to Sydney then. So we moved to the North Shore, big two mortgages. And so I said to the bank, I'm working in the city all day, every day, but I said, can I do a few tax returns on the side? Because 
once you became an accountant back then, you automatically become a tax agent. Well, I did go to uh, tech a couple, of, a few nights a week for a year to brush up on the tax. So I started doing some tax returns only on the side, not really accounting. So I don't sort of call myself an accountant as such. So that's how I started that business, which I grew then. Tell me about that business. How did you grow it? Well, I started this business because I was working, still working five days a week at the Cornwall Bank's finance company, CBFC. So I put an ad in the paper for after hours tax returns. You know, my wife would take me phone calls. I'd come home, go and see one or two people a night. Bit, bit hard, you've got three kids and all that. So then I thought, I'll make this easier, you know. So you always got to think, you know. If you don't think you're in trouble in business, and a lot of people don't think, they just do what someone else does. So I then realised that I could put an ad in Yellow Pages and put other people's names in it. And so we had a business called, uh, we changed the name then to Investment and Tax Service because investment was just taking off and I recognised there was an opportunity there associated with accountants. So I put this big ad, it was in front of, people might know, ITP and H&R Block. Well, my name was in front of them, even though I'm working in the bank. Very smart. So I put in, you know, phone number for Liverpool, a phone number for Balcombe Hills or Meaning Hornsby. if Joe Blow's sitting at home and wants their tax return done, they can go, oh, we live near Liverpool yeah. or we live near Camden or we live near Chatswood. And they would ring them direct. So I all I, was, all I was in effect doing was selling the yellow pages, but I had the first, the biggest ad and the first ad before the other people. But you were like the agent for all these other tax agents. No, no, they would get, the clients would be their client. Now I charge them an advertising fee. Right. Right. So back then, for example, the Yellow Pages, I remember this was $14,000 for a big ad, and I charged these people 7000 So if I had 12 phone numbers in there at 7000 that would be 84000 and I'd pay the Yellow Pages 14000 So $70,000, and at that time I was earning about 20000 in the bank. And all Brilliant. I was doing- <laughs> so all I was doing is once a year putting it out in the Yellow Pages, apart from doing that. So then I moved on to getting a, an AFSL equivalent license, the dealer's license, for to give financial, financial advice. Financial services license, yeah. Because I took the view that mum and dad deserved professional advice rather than sales advice from life agents, friendly societies, property trusts, whatever it might be. Just explain that difference. What, why did you think that they needed proper independent advice? Well, I just think if somebody's getting paid a commission to sell you something, then their advice is going to be a bit different, even though the industry was commission-based. But if you're a professional accountant, you, you still got to answer to your accounting bodies. And because of your training and all that, you understand different, you think differently, you're a professional as opposed to Someone who could be a plumber one week and next week they're a life agent. Or yeah. Well, I think else. almost 35 years later, the Royal Commission actually agreed with you. The Royal Commission proved that to be right, yes. But it was pretty obvious to me then. So. And this was what, 1980 around then? Yes. I got the li- I formed the company in 1980, which the, the benef- benefit of that date, Helen, is that it's pre capital gains tax. Capital gains tax coming in 85. So Count was formed in 1980. Count Financial, Count this financial. is the, the business you started. Yeah, and that was formed in 1980. I gave equity fr- from the beginning to my wife and three kids. I had 50% to make sure I could control the company if things went wrong somewhere. And so that, that was all pre-capital gains tax, uh, and that's crazy. I think that should change, quite frankly, but I'm not in Parliament. Yes. And what was Count Financial? We became a formal franchise, but from the beginning, I'd say we're franchise-like because we weren't a franchise as such. So we trained the accountants and we gave them our dealer's license, AFSL, you might say. We licensed them 
and trained them and supported them to give advice to mum and dad, tax advice, their accounting advice. So it was a one-stop shop for mum and dad. We weren't in interest in the big end of town because that's the, the, the big accounting firms play. So this was for mum and dad who needed help rather than just sales advice. So, so that's, that's where we played. Yeah, so you weren't a salesman, but you still got commission if you sold, say, colonial business or MLC business or some such. Yes, the industry was commission-based, so we weren't big enough or strong enough like ASIC has done to change the industry, although we would limit the amount. We would say to the to the people, you charge a fee and you click up to your fee the amount by the commission system and we would rebate the rest to the client. So it was a fee-based business, but the way the industry was, and as I said, we're too big to change that, is that we generally get paid by commission into their account. They would rebate the remainder. Right. That, that way we didn't have bad debts or, or things like that. Yeah. So, so you started to bring accountants into that business. They were all accountants. So it was an accounting-based business from the beginning because we wanted to be different. And being different, we therefore attracted attention because if the rest of the industry is based by life companies, friendly societies, property trust people, et cetera, et cetera, and you're an accounting-based group, when a news item is written or whatever, or an article, they'd always want opinions from both sides. Well, I was the only one on the on the professional accounting side. So we'd get more pro- promotion and published than we deserved, really. Right. So that's why we, we, I guess we became pretty well known. That helped us spread the business. When you decided to go into this business to start it, was it a big vision you had? You thought, oh, I can a- attract, you know, hundreds of Accountants, I'll be the biggest financial advisory no, business no, in the it land. Wasn't. See, people say, "Oh, you're, you know, you're a visionary and all this." Well, that, that's a bit, bit of nonsense in a way, because I got into out of necessity to pay the mortgage that I mentioned to you. Then I thought, "That's all a bit hard. How can I make it easier by do, doing the yellow pages ad?" Then I saw but all these agents would ring me and say, "Can you refer clients to us for investment?" So I looked into that business and thought, "I wouldn't want to refer any of my clients to some of these blacks, you know." <laughs> So that's how I got into that business. So it wasn't any great vision. It was really trying to do the right thing by, by our clients, you might say. Yeah, but, I mean, you could have stayed at the bank. You could oh, have yeah. climbed the ranks and had a very good job and had a high-paying job. Why did you decide to go out on your own? First of all, the interest came from necessity to pay the mortgage, two mortgages run. But I also was a bit unhappy with the bank. Back then, and it's a long time ago, so they won't be sued now, but there'd be a class action today, quite frankly. The banks, and not all of them, but the CBA was no different, the banks used to run competitions between branches as to who can get the most funds in the bank, nil interest bearing, paying no interest. Now, of course, today, they don't pay much interest either, but there's no interest rates are very low today and inflation is low or has been. But back then, you had inflation of 10% plus and interest rates were 15, up even up, sometimes up over 20%, right? So if you got a pension, and back then, before 83, the asset, the pension requirement was an, an income-based requirement, not an assets-based requirement. So you could be a millionaire back in the 80s and get the pension if you earned no money. So they appeal to these people, you like your pension and the benefits it brings, and yet you got some money. Why not earn nothing on your money? Just give it to us and we won't pay you anything and you'll get the pension, Mrs. Jones. Now, sadly, people did not know any better. Well, that was too much for me. I thought that was wrong as a matter of principle, morals, you know. So I was making some noise. They weren't going to change anything. 
So that is why I really left the bank, apart from I got interested in those things because of the pay and the mortgage. But it was that principle that the reason I decided I could go and do better. Then I decided that uh, there's an opportunity here in a sort of a big way, you might say. So the Commonwealth Bank listed actually in 1991. So I'd, I'd left the bank uh, more than 10 years before that. I'd got the license actually before. I was on long service leave and half pay. So so I actually got the license before I actually left the bank, but with, with their permission. Then when the Commonwealth Bank listed in 1991 and having been an accountant, a qualified accountant into the investment thing and all that, I realised that that was a good opportunity for mum and dad investor. Rather than next to nothing, they could be owning the bank. So I started doing some investment seminars talking about why they should buy shares in the Commonwealth Bank in the float. We put together these seminars through these accountants and I think probably put some ads in the paper. And I quickly ran around the country doing these seminars. And I explained to people that why the Commonwealth Bank was a good investment, but also what made a good investment. And of course, what makes a good investment, Helen, in my view, the best investment over time is a great business. You've got thousands of people paying your rent equivalent, you might say, customers or whatever it might be. So I put together these seminars, you know, what makes a good investment. And what made a good investment was good businesses where you spend your money and we all spend our money each day, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought, reflected after a very short time, I thought, Barry, you're a bit of a hypocrite. Here you are giving seminars on what makes a good investment. Your business is not such a good invest, a good business itself. So that's when I decided to rev up that business and get serious about it. So we grew up. How did the Commonwealth Bank listing give you a big break? Such a good opportunity. For mum and dad investors. For mum and dad, yeah. that I started doing these seminars. Then I realised these people just want information. They love these seminars and they love me explaining to people what made a good investment. And I'd explain to them, you know, uh, all the various investments and just, just the household names they could understand, like Woolworths. And people loved it and they understood it. And then I realised that if I want to promote the, the business and, and attract more accountants and more clients to them, then I could do these seminars. So for about 10 years, yeah, doing a seminar two a week around the country. So everyone thought you were a genius. A lot of them do. A lot of them do. You know, they couldn't be more wrong, but nevertheless, they loved them. And of course, I think everything we ever spoke about was always good. But I explained to them how to recognise, you know, that investment. So that got me on the path to expand count. And you listed count? We listed count in December 2000. So remember, it was 91, the Commonwealth Bank. So I'd been running around and we've been getting bigger and bigger. And of course, being an old-fashioned sort of a person, I wanted to give ownership to my franchisees, to the accountants. You know, you can have an unlisted company and have people owning things, but there's always arguments about what's the real value of the share, et cetera. So to me, the only way to have a, have a to value a, a share or a business is to let the market decide its value where the owner's not saying, oh, you've got to pay us this or I'll pay you this for your shares. Yeah. Let the market decide. So that's what we listed it for. So we sold down 40% primarily to our network and we also had an option system whereby the more business they did, they could buy more shares in, in, in count. So they loved all that, that, that we were doing this for them. Yeah. But, of course, you needed some shareholders as well to make up the numbers. But we only raised $8 million in the float because we didn't need the money because we were profitable. That's why we list, listed the company. Were you able to take out a bundle of money in that listing? Well, I don't mean a bundle, but what happened was the 40 cent shares, in the meantime, I'd sold 10% to our Victorian man manager. 
We'd sold down 80 million shares at 40 cents, so that was $32 million, which the Lambert's got 90% thereof. We paid the expenses of the IPO, all that. And the company raised 20 million shares at 40 cents of new money. So the company raised $8 million. Now, as I said, we didn't need that, but before we listed, we only had $2 million of capital. So we couldn't very well list the company with, with no, no, no dollars behind it. No. So we raised $8 million. We didn't use it, didn't need it. We just sat in the bank, you know, but at least gave people satisfaction this is a real company rather than just some numbers thing. So meanwhile, I know we're sort of skipping over, no doubt, a lot of what happened, but meanwhile, the big banks are getting into wealth management and investment and uh, all that sort of thing in a massive way. Tell me about the story about CBA, ComBank, buying Count Financial in 2011. We'd been listed now since uh, December 2000. We were going along very well, always made a profit. We paid quarterly dividends because my belief was if you make any money, you should give it to your shareholders. So we paid quarterly dividends. And we got a knock on the door uh, from the Commonwealth Bank. And I always had the view that if I ever wanted to sell, I always thought the bank treated me well and I had nothing against them. I didn't like what they and the other banks were doing, as I explained earlier. But nevertheless, I always thought the Commonwealth Bank was the best owner for our business. But in the interim years, David Morgan from Westpac used to court me and take me to lunch up in uh, Martin Place there once a year. I'd say, Barry, you know, we'd like to buy your business one day, whatever. And I always said, Dave, if I'm ever going to sell the business, I'll, I'll let you know, right? So when the Commonwealth Bank knocked on my door, a gentleman there came and saw me and said, Barry, we're interested in, in making an offer for, for account. We want to know what you think. And I said, well, it doesn't matter what I think. The directors will make the decision. I've got to always act in the best interest of the shareholders, right? So it doesn't matter what, what I think. If you want to make an offer, you make an offer. So we didn't sign anything. So I made sure that by this time, David Morgan had left Westpac, but I um, contacted Westpac and said, oh, by the way, I think something might be going to happen. I just always promised David I'd tell him I'll give him an opportunity. So nothing ever come out of that, but at least I, I did the right thing there. So we go back the next day and they said, this is what we want to do. And I said, well, you, might, you, know, you formally make it and the shareholders will discuss it. At this stage, what sort of percentage shareholding did you have? Originally, remember, we'd sold down 40%, so we owned not, there was 6% left. We owned about 54%, but we'd issued shares over the years to options and all that to staff. So uh, I think it was down around about 40%. From, okay. Because that was never a prime motive. I, right. I don't know those numbers. No. Honest, right? Okay. So we owned, but it would have been about 40%, I'd imagine. So they made an offer and I put it to the board. And by the way, I, I was the last person to speak because I said to the board, this, here it is. They all said, we should do it. And I said, okay, I agree. And that, and that was it. So they went through the process. By then, I realized things were going to change. So, you know, I'm 65, used to be normal retirement age. So not that I had dated, I wasn't the CEO, but everyone probably thought I, I was pretty influential in the business. I was still the chairman. So I just thought it was the right thing to do. You know, you've got to let other people run businesses around yourself. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I mean, it still must have been a difficult decision to say, I'm going to let my business baby go. It wasn't. You felt it was the right decision? I thought it was the right decision. Admittedly, when it happened, you know, a little tear comes in your eyes, but, but it was just the right decision. So, so ComBank paid you $373 million. Well, that's what's written in the paper. I assume that's right. I, I, 
They didn't pay to me. They paid, <laughs> you never they counted paid, it. No, they paid to the shareholders. They paid the shareholders, yeah, of yeah. which you were still a yeah. major shareholder. Yeah, I was well, family-owned, whatever, 30 or 40%, whatever I said before. Yeah. So, yeah, they did that. And they asked me to stay on as chairman, which was really just to let the accountants know that Barry has gone. That was sort of symbolic, really. And that was in November of 2011 that deal was finished. And they asked me to stay on for two years as part of the contract. And I said, oh, could you make it to the 20th of January 2014? In other words, just a bit over two years. They said, yes, but why? And I said, well, then I'll be able to say I've worked for Commonwealth Bank or a wholly owned subsidiary for 50 years. <laughs> Lovely. So I, I formally retired as chairman of Cow 50 years from the day I walked in the Commonwealth Bank in Tahiti as an employee. At what age? At at 16 and a half for you. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. It's such an interesting story, even that. I know we've got several more empires to get through. Barry, just before we move on to other businesses, I mean, you didn't have necessarily a family of entrepreneurs. You, you didn't no. come from, uh, no. you know, super high achievers in that sense. Where do you think your entrepreneurial spirit came from and your drive in business and decision-making ability? Well, I'd studied accounting and studied banking and lending people money and the like. You you learn who makes money, who doesn't make money. And I read all the finance things as we grew up because I guess even at our primary school, you do those aptitude tests. They always come up with superior numbers or something rather than the line was. So we're always interested in numbers and like money, so you were money very I guess. numerous and, yeah. and good at money. Yeah. I remember my, my grandmother said uh, – Barry, look after the pennies, the pounds, or look after themselves. I still remember that to the day. And do, do you think you actually lived by that? Yeah, well, well, as I said earlier, we were born immediately after the war and country people and, you know, my father ended up dying as a pensioner and, and my wife came from a similar sort of background. So we've lived frugally. We don't drive big cars or, or whatever. So we've always lived like that, I guess, in a way. So you met your wife, Joy, in high school and you're still married to her today? Yep. We met at school. She obviously chased me. Um, <laughs> Would she say that? <laughs> no, I think so. <laughs> uh, we've been going out ever since. I was in New Guinea for a bit then. We got married, had kids, are still together. Would you say she's really your partner? Is she a partner in your business thinking as well? She's not business orientated in that way. She's a family sort of a family person. Well, she worked part time as a well, full time initially, but part time as a teacher. She's a needlework, home economics type teacher. I, I was always the the money person, you might say. But she did work in the business a couple of days a week, employing people and that sort of stuff for a while. What do you think was the key to count financial success? I think there was the independence and the professionalism by choosing to go with accountants and we promoted them. So we became different to the rest. I learned that actually there's a book that Edward de Bono wrote. And when I read that line, the book was called Sir Petition for Memory. But what he said, you got to put in business, you've got to position yourself so your clients don't think there's anybody else like you. So there's no one else to go to. So I would explain this to our accountants that there's all those financial planners out there, whether they're called bankers, life agents, whatever it might be, financial planners, et cetera. Then there's us on the other side. You know, we're, we're all professional people. You're accountants. And eventually we created a name called wealth accountants. We created the term, registered that 
we own that. I don't know whether Commonwealth Bank still owns it or council owns it, but we own the name. We patented the name. So we were different to all the rest. We weren't just ordinary accountants. We were wealth accountants. But Edward de Bono said, you've got to position your business so you're like nobody else. So when a client went into the accountant for their tax return or whatever, you could also talk to them about their home loan, about their insurance, about their investments, about their superannuation that other people couldn't necessarily do. So they just did this or just did that. I, I took that to heart that we're like nobody else's business. And that's why I think we did well. We were were no smarter than anybody else. We just presented ourselves differently, chose different qualified people and made sure that we always looked different to them. Well, it obviously was very successful, extraordinarily successful, given the price that Combank paid for it in 2011, over $370 million. You'd also started Count Plus and then just briefly tell us about that story because that was was it another service? Was it another business altogether? Well, it was effectively a service for accountants to help them to sell part of their business so that they could liquidate part of their business via a listed vehicle. So Count actually, we started that in 2006. So we actually bought part of their business and then we listed that on the stock market. So they still own the, the majority. In some cases, we end up buying all of it which was a mistake. So now that business doesn't buy all of them. So we buy part of their business. They still own part, but at least they've been able to take some money off the table to diversify their own assets because otherwise the accountant got all their eggs in their home and their business. And now this enabled them to put more money to super or whatever else it was. Right. So starting in 2006, listed in 2010, a year before the Commonwealth Bank came along and bought, bought us, accounts still own a large percentage of, of Count Plus. Then, so the Commonwealth Bank to this day still owns Pound of Count Plus. It becomes more complicated a little bit further. You founded this spin off, Count Plus, in, as you say, 2006. You also founded a self managed superannuation fund software product called Class. Class, yes. How successful was that? Well, Class ended up being quite successful. I didn't actually found that as such. I think they called me their founding director. Right. And I believe I joined there as chairman. In about 2008, we listed that business in 2015. So it was an overnight success, seven years. I virtually bought my shares at the IPO because I was still working for Count and Count. Oh, by the way, Count invested some money in that to, to get it to save it in the first instance. And that was done through my staff. The CEO said, Barry, I'd like to get involved in this. And they then asked me to come along as chairman. I didn't want to do it, but I went to a meeting and they all pushed their chairs back and they said, now we're going to need a chairman, and I'm the only one sitting at the table. So it was set up. So I became chairman of that. We listed in 2015 at a dollar. Those shares uh, got up to $4.20. I sold some at $4.10 after I'd left, and they'd just been taken over. Count Financial, when it was owned by the Commonwealth Bank, and partly when you were still involved, was caught up in the fee-for-no-service that was uncovered at the Royal Commission into Institutional Banking. Yes, how did you feel about that? As you know, I'd left, left there for some time. What I understand, what accountants would do, would set up a, a periodical payment. We have, they're going to charge a client so much a year and they'd debit their account yeah. $100 a month, whatever it might be. Now, apparently the, the one that was mentioned in the Royal Commission from my, mem- my understanding, what I'm told, is the client had died and the affairs were being looked after by a trustee company and the periodical payment was still going through. Now, the accountant should have picked up on that, but show should, should the trustee company. And so that was the one that was referred to as a fee for no service. And the Royal Commissioner 
Ken Hayne was very harsh on Count. I mean, obviously not as harsh as he was on the Commonwealth Bank. No, no. So as they were all caught up in it, I don't know the, the details. I, I didn't listen to it every day. I just No. Uh, and you weren't involved at that time, were you? No, no. Well, we saw that in 2011. Was it, yeah. was it, was it 2014? 14 or yeah. later on, yeah. Generally. Yeah, they went back to that 13, period. 13, 14, though. 15, And yeah. our CEO was uh, then previously, uh, now CBA, she was in, involved in, in that. How did you feel, though, because that had been your baby? I can understand how it happened. But it was disappointing to be caught up in that sort of thing because in all that time we, ne- we never had any any issues, but it was sad in that, yeah. that sense. Yeah. yeah. By the way, the Commonwealth Bank has done a, a great job of uh, – they just go out of their way to, to compensate people even. I believe there's still potential out there and they've provided for that. It's just been amazing what they've done. I guess they all have, I don't know, but um, I'm familiar with the Commonwealth Bank. Anybody sort of complains, they pay them out yeah. for advice rather than – Fee. Yeah. There came a time then when Count Plus bought back Count Financial from the Commonwealth Bank for two and a half million dollars. So CBA in 2011 paid $373 million for it. You guys bought it back well less than 10 years later for two and a half million dollars. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, that was after my time at Cup. I'd left Cup or Count Plus, the, right. the Cage Cup. I'd left there in 2017 as previously as chairman director. And then after I left, the bank decided because of the Royal Commission, I guess, they didn't want to be in this business. And they approached Count Plus and, and offered to sell them the business back. Probably by then, a lot of people had left. And I understand, by the way, that also came with cash. So whilst that was a token, that was a token amount, I believe it was a negative value. In real life. Yeah. I want to turn to your next uh, venture because you've become a mogul, I guess, in terms of medicinal cannabis. And this came about because of a, a, a tragedy really in your family. But you are now a great advocate for the use of medicinal cannabis and hemp in this country. Yes. What is legal? What is not? And how did you get to that? <laughs> Okay, well, you're, you're right. You identified our granddaughter, our 10th grandchild, Caitlin, was born with, uh, well, it only shows us after about six months, severe epilepsy condition called Dravet syndrome. Dravet syndrome, you have, uh, it's a mutation in, in the brain, and what happens is that you have these severe epilepsy fits. But when you have a fit, it's like electricity, all the neurons and that are all out of balance and uh, all racing around. It's like being little mini electrocutions. So she became brain damaged from all this, and her prognosis was that she'd end up with vegetable in a wheelchair, unable to walk, talk, feed herself, etc. So my family, my wife and, and my son, uh, searched the net and discovered that there was a girl in America who had a similar condition, and she was being given medical cannabis or hemp extract. I should just for your listeners explain that cannabis is a bit like citrus. There's oranges and lemons. They're two different things, but they're still a citrus. When it comes to cannabis, there's marijuana. That's high in a thing called THC. It's got a long name. Then there's CBD, cannabidiol. Cannabidiol. It gives you no high. So it's the THC in marijuana that gives gives you you the high. high. It's the THC in marijuana that gives you a high. I understand that street marijuana is probably 20% plus THC. Any less than that doesn't give enough buzz these days. So CBD, in order to qualify, in order to qualify as hemp, you've got to have less than 0.3. 
of a percent. Twenty so percent versus point three. All right. Yeah. So one's sixty times stronger, you might say. So so hemp doesn't give you a buzz. All right. You can take it all day or smoke it all day and do nothing for you. But hemp has all the cannabinoids in it. In fact, it's got more of a lot of them than than cannabis has because cannabis is twenty percent THC. So it's only eighty percent of the others. Right. Hemp is only point three percent THC. So that's got more of the others. And magically, a lot of these others work in mysterious ways. It's it's called the entourage effect, a combination of them. But CBD is the one that the, the Americans have patented, the American government has patented, and that's the one best known, just as THC is in marijuana is the one that's best known. But hemp extract has other cannabinoids in it, and they seem to work better than just pure CBD. My family discovered that this girl in America, in Colorado, is having this hemp. So our son imported this from Denmark and from Colorado too and other places. but Illegally. Illegally at the time, yes. He adopted the one from Denmark um, and he gave her some the night before. Remember, she's having seizures, uh, constant seizures all the time. She's like drowsy and um, whatever. And some she was being hospitalised for. Some she was being so hospitalised. Serious. Right. The biggest one that probably did most damage when she first got diagnosed, she had two and a half hour seizure and they airlifted her from Gosford Hospital, the, the Prince of Wales. And that's how she met her doctor there that diagnosed the problem. So she wakes up as a zombie every day and um, probably seizing through the night and all that sort of stuff. So the son gave her some of this the night before and the next morning she walks out. She's two and a half, three years old now. She walks out wide awake, as bright as a button, and uh, said to his wife, you know, this works. He was doing doing that, got into trouble because he provoked, he was trying to change the law. Yep. Got into trouble and uh, the end result, he ended up going to court and whatever. But the result of that, he introduced me to Sydney University. He met them at a conference. We did that Lambert Initiative thing that you probably know about. The Lambert Initiative is something you invested something like $33 million in to help Sydney do University, research yeah. at Sydney University. Yes, and that's and that's research into cannabinoids full stop. Right. Not just for epilepsy, but for all range of yeah. conditions. Yeah. But Barry, you have taken this on as a business cause, haven't you? You've invested yeah. in, in wow. various parts of this. You're, you're right, Helen. After we did the agreement with Sydney University, I still hadn't seen hemp or cannabis. My son said, Dad, now we've done that, I want you to come and meet this hemp grower up the Hunter Valley at this time, or a Queensland company, but growing some on a coal mine for rehabilitation purposes or remediation of coal mine ground. So we went up there, met him, and uh, he was about to go broke. So the end result, I ended up giving him some money, and then I thought, well, I better have a look at this. So the current CEO, I said to him, Eric, I said, look, I've given this bloke some money to help him out because it might help Caitlin one day. Look, as though we need to invest in this, and and that's how the CEO got involved, how I got involved. The business was such, I was going to try and get some other investors in there because at that time we were about to sell list class and a lot of those people made a lot of money. But when I saw the business, I thought, oh, I couldn't introduce my friends to this. <laughs> it wasn't good enough. So I kept on putting in more money. And eventually we listed that in March 2019. And that's Ecofiber. Ecofiber, the code's EOF. And I've now, as of last Friday, uh, retired from that at 75. We've got some other great directors involved. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. You obviously turn a lot of your business ideas into business success stories. I mean, this is now, what's your third empire? Well, I wouldn't call them empires, but I've been chairman of four companies, including Count Plus and Class. Two I'm wholly responsible for. Class, I wasn't the founder of that, but I was just there as, a, as the chairman. And Ecofiber, again, others have been involved in that. I've, 
I've been the chairman and put up a lot of money to keep it going. So what do you think is the key to your success? People think I must be an entrepreneur or whatever, but all those things I've described to you just sort of happen. And they've all been a cause in a way, because even the class, it was to help accounts become more efficient of self-managed superannuation administration. That was the what got us involved there. So that was an internet-based system, automated business, et cetera. And that was about helping the accountant. So it's always been about helping somebody. And the last one's about been helping my granddaughter as the principal. But, you know, the, like the Lambert Initiative has just given out five PhD scholarships, five different countries originally to, to study cannabinoids under the Lambert Initiative name. So that's about, that's a worldwide recognised body now. And so that's nothing to do with us as such except... Well, you funded it. We well, you funded it, but we don't, we don't get involved in it no. because it's independent. And hopefully they might be able to help Caitlin one day or the others like Caitlin, but that's, it just happens. Uh, so I don't consider myself an entrepreneur or not that, but opportunities present themselves and I've thought, oh, we, we could do something here, should have helped. So that's, that's my story. Yeah, <laughs> so if you, if you were asked by a young person, should they pursue their dream or even their humble idea, what would you say to them? Uh, I'd, I'd say... Just sit back and wait a while because I was really quite old before I first got into any business. The biggest mistake people made is they get into a business without thinking too much about it. It'll never, ever work. As being a lender of people, I I can almost, if someone tells me about an idea, I think I've got a pretty good understanding and say, well, that'll never work. You can never make that commercial. A good idea, you know, you might help some people, but if you're trying to make money out of that, it's going to be very hard. You've got to get the big macro picture right first. If you're in the wrong business, the wrong industry, don't know what you're doing or whatever, then just wait a while. Something else will come up that you can do, that you've probably got the ability to do it better than almost anybody else. And you don't have to be the best as such. You've only got to be better than most people. I say you've got to be better than the person next to you because if you keep on beating the person next to you, well, you're in the top 50% and you just keep on going to the top. You've got to work hard and, and learn about it and whatever, but you don't have to be an Einstein to be successful in business. But you've got to make that, get the macro decision right first. That's the first step. Otherwise, you'll, you'll, never, you'll never recover. You'll lose your money. Work smart as you can. Learn and just be better than your competition, whatever that might be. Would you say you're a risk taker? People would say I'm a risk taker. If I think of things too risky, I would immediately say, look, no, I'm not interested in that, sorry, without spending too much time on it. Because I feel as though it's obvious to me what is going to work and what won't work, what's got no chance of working. But I do help causes as such. I do, and I have invested in a few things because I think the society needs that and it's got some prospect of success. If it's got no prospect, I won't invest in it. Yeah. And most of them have been um, pretty good. Well, you've also invested or, or given money to a foundation. You've started your own foundation, you and your wife. Uh, yeah, well, well, we had the Count Charitable Foundation. That's got uh, $21 million in it. So we, uh, I'm, I'm the chairman of that. Yeah. We give out a million dollars a year. And even sitting on the bus coming in today, I'm, uh, people are asking about this or that. So I, sort of, I refer them to the manager. But the Account Charitable Foundation, we try and link it to the, to the account network. We try and get the accountants involved and whatever. And most of the donations are sort of go out through them, but somewhere to give direct. So we're now at well over a million dollars a year to all sorts of organisations from Wayside Chapel to the school in Tanzia, all sorts of things. Barry, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. You are one of Australia's original and and the best entrepreneurs, and I really thank you for your time. Just an ordinary, you're 
Well, you're not at all. And in fact, I think three, maybe four empires later, I think we can say you've absolutely proven yourself in business. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.